Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, I'm Marina Yevshan, co-host of the Russia-Ukraine War Report Podcast, and today is October the 13th, 2023. It's been 3,517 days since Russia's illegal occupation of Crimea on January 27, 2014, and one year and 232 days since Russia expanded its war of aggression against Ukraine. During today's podcast, you can use a Russia-Ukraine war map to help you visualize the areas discussed. And there is a link in the podcast description. There are more updates today. The Russia-Ukraine war report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from our direct contacts and journalists in Ukraine, the Russian Ministry of Defense and the Ukrainian General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine Morning Reports, Operational Commands North, South and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geospatial experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media channels with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission – the truth because the truth matters. Let's start with the daily assessment. We maintain the soft response by Ukraine's allies after Russian aggression on Ukraine's border will eventually lead to a significant incident that could result in military intervention, with the Romanian reporting another drone strike. The Ukrainian summer-fall counteroffensive is likely reaching its culmination point due to a number of factors, including degrading weather and significant questions about continued military aid from the United States, even though Ukraine still maintains significant combat potential. In our assessment, the Russian Federation has launched multiple large-scale attacks in an attempt to force Ukraine to utilize its reserve forces and accelerate the consumption of ammunition, with United States military aid remaining in limbo. The removal of the United States Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, has put future Ukrainian military operations at extreme risk. We further assess that the abrupt ending of U.S. military aid will be catastrophic if a resolution is not reached within the next 13 to 20 days. We are growing pessimistic that Congress is capable of seating a new speaker in the near future. Additionally, Western partners are not meeting their promised military training, including for F-16 pilots, heavy equipment and ammunition delivery dates, and these continued delays are negatively impacting Ukraine's military capabilities. The Kremlin is using the Israel-Hamas war as a distraction in the information space, to fracture support for Ukraine further, and has engaged in large-scale disinformation campaigns. Our early assessment that former Wagnerites who signed new contracts with the Russian Ministry of Defense or newly formed private military companies would be treated as expendable assets was accurate, with the first former Wagner mercenaries fighting in Storm Z units and being held in place by Chechen Ahmad blocking troops. This is part of the Kremlin's slow-motion purge after the failed Prigozhin insurrection. We maintain that Russia has started its campaign to destroy Ukraine's energy infrastructure, and while the possibility of an intentional nuclear accident caused by Russian occupiers at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains low, 
the threat should be taken seriously. Once again, today's action report starts in Kharkiv. The situation is stabilizing, but remains difficult for Ukrainian forces. Russian forces continued their attacks in the direction of Sinkivka, from Liman Pershi and east of Ivanivka. The intensity of the attacks was similar to yesterday, and there were no changes to the line of conflict. During the October the 11th, the 12th Shahid-136 drone attack, at least one struck the industrial district of Kharkiv. Several residential buildings were damaged, with two civilians wounded. Moving on to the situation in the Donbass, we start in Luhansk. Near Svatove, the intensity of Russian attacks also declined, with four assaults in the direction of Makiivka that ended in failure. Near Kremina, intense positional fighting supported by artillery continued in the Serebrensky woods, and there was mutual fighting near Dibrova. The situation for Ukrainian forces remains difficult, but existing defensive lines are holding. In northeastern Donetsk, Ukrainian forces have made new advances. Marginal gains were made north of Klishchivka in the direction of Opetne, while east of the railroad grade a tactical advance was completed. Ukrainian forces are 1,750 to 2,000 meters from the T-513 highway Russian ground line of communication, G-Log supply line, at Odradivka. Russian troops assembled on the northern edge of Odradivka were attacked and suffered heavy losses before they could move to the line of conflict. Ukrainian forces also pushed eastward from Andriivka and in the direction of Mykolaivka Druha, achieving marginal gains in the direction of Zelenopilia. Fighting has also moved to the western edge of Kurdyumevka. Russia has moved up Stormzy volunteer units staffed by former Wagnerites to defend Kurdyumevka, with elements of the Chechen Ahmad 54th Brigade returning to the area to act as blocking troops. The war map was updated. Intense fighting continued in southwestern Donetsk, with Russian forces continuing to suffer heavy losses. In the Avdiivka AO, the head of the Avdiivka military administration, Vitaly Barabash, said that October the 10th was, quote, probably the biggest Russian attack on the city during the entire full-scale war. The enemy used almost 2,000 soldiers and 100 pieces of equipment. On October the 11th, the Russian infantry went on the assault. The landing party landed in groups of 20 to 30 people. Quick sidebar, that's platoon-sized groups. The invaders came from 10 to 12 directions. However, the situation is under control. The Ukrainian military held all its positions. Unquote. Russian forces continued their attempts to advance towards Stepove from the Krasnohorivka plateau, reaching the railroad tracks, but were unable to establish new defensive positions. Northwest of Krasnohorivka, Russia destroyed the railroad station at Ocheretene, with no casualties reported. From the southwestern landings of the plateau and Vasele, Russian troops pushed in the direction of the Avdiivka coke plant, reaching the landings of the Terekon. A Terekon is an artificial mounting and is a fancy word to describe a mining waste heap. 
A bit of clarification from a person born and raised in Donetsk. Avdiivka Terracon is an arbitrary name, as it didn't appear through mining process, but is a slag waste heap. Nevertheless, it is commonly called a Terracon. Despite Russian propagandist claims, they were unable to secure the high point and were pushed back to their established defensive positions. We did enjoy watching the TikTok-grade fake fighting video, geolocated nowhere near Avdiivka, as Russian proof the area was captured. I have a follow-up on the status of the bridge on the E-50 highway G-lock between Horlivka and Yasinovata that was destroyed on October the 11th. Our geospatial expert geolocated the bridge east of Vasilivka, and its loss will significantly impact Russian logistics. The bypass route requires traveling through Yenakieve, which will make the distance and time needed to move personnel and material to the Krasnohorivka plateau significantly longer. A prominent Russian mail blogger reported that Russian troops also tried to advance from Opetne, but were unsuccessful. Russian artillery has relentlessly shelled Avdiivka, and overnight a combination of thermite and white phosphorus munitions targeted Ukrainian positions. In the video, the bright white, slowly dropping munitions with minimal smoke are thermite, and the yellow-white, quickly dropping munitions with heavy white smoke are phosphorus. This is the first time we have documented the incendiaries used together. We link to the videos in our daily situation report, available to our subscribers. There is a link in the podcast description. And we offer a free 7-day trial. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, GSAFU, reported that Russian attacks in the area of Lastochkine and Tonenke were unsuccessful. After a year of trying to capture Severne, Russian forces are now trying to bypass the settlement. A Russian attack from Piske in the direction of Pervomaiske and Nevelske ended with Russian forces suffering catastrophic losses. On top of the eight armored vehicles destroyed, an estimated 100 Russian troops were killed during the failed attack. We can verify that Russian forces suffered an estimated 100 casualties based on the videos we analyzed, but we cannot confirm they were all killed in action. With 66 tanks and armored vehicles confirmed destroyed in the last three days, Russian armored losses have become the third worst in the single offensive since February 24, 2022. During the failed Belohorivka river crossings from May 8 to May 10, Russia lost 83 armored vehicles, and during the Vogladar offensive at the end of January 2023, over 130 armored vehicles were destroyed. We did update the war map, expanding the no-man's land west and southwest of Krasnohorivka and south of Severna. In the Marienka AO, Russian forces continued their attempts to capture Marienka without success and failed to advance toward Pobeda. Southeast of Vuhledar, intense fighting was ongoing east of Novomikhailivka. There was no change in the situation. In occupied Donetsk, Insurgents destroyed the barracks for combat engineers staying in Mariupol. There weren't any casualties, but they'll need to find a new place to sleep.
Continuing along the line of conflict, there is today's update for Zaporizhia. Brigadier General Oleksandr Tarnavsky, commander of the Operational Strategic Group of Troops Tavria, reported that Ukrainian forces carried out 1,805 fire missions, while Russian forces responded with 930. It was the largest artillery duel between the two combatants since June the 4th. The Russian Aerospace Forces VKS, also carried out 39 airstrikes. Fighting appears to have moved into another attritional phase. South of Urykhiv, Russian forces continued unsuccessful counterattacks on the western edge of Verbova. The line of conflict on the Surovikin line from Verbova to Novoprokopivka along the 140 and 160 meter heights has remained stable. On the northern edge of Novoprokopivka, Russian forces counterattacked but were unable to push Ukrainian forces back. West of Robotene, Ukrainian forces were able to make marginal gains. The war map was adjusted with changes to the line of conflict and the gray area. A prominent Russian mail blogger reported that Ukrainian forces made additional marginal gains near Kopani, but did not specify if that was from the north of Robotene. It's time to talk about the Black Sea, including the countries of Romania and Bulgaria, occupied Crimea and the Mykolaiv and Odessa regions. Operational Command South, OCS, did not report on the composition of the Black Sea fleet. There were no updates on the status of the Russian patrol boat Pavel Derzhavin, which may have struck a mine on October 11. I have breaking news. Ukrainian and Russian sources are reporting that a Project 22160 petrol boat, with Russian sources claiming it is the Pavel Derzhavin, has suffered mobility kill damage. Russian sources claim that the Derzhavin was being towed back to Sevastopol when the tugboat also came under attack by an experimental Sea Baby uncrewed surface or potentially subsurface drone. According to Russian sources, the tugboat was also damaged. We didn't need to check with our sources to confirm the damage to a Project 22160 petrol boat, because the incident happened within sight of Sevastopol, with many witnesses, pictures and videos. There are multiple reports that there was an explosion and the ship is now trailing a plume of dark black smoke from the aft. The Pavel Derzhavin was reportedly damaged by a mine two days ago, and the pictures and videos of the damaged 22160 petrol boat just offshore the Sevastopol don't show a tugboat in the area. Whether it is the Derzhavin or another petrol boat is for the moment academic. We can confirm that a Russian 22160 petrol boat was attacked and experienced mobility kill damage but we can't say with certainty if it is the Pavel Derzhavin. Another Russian Shahid-136 kamikaze drone struck Romania on the night of September 11th and 12th. Debris and a crater were found about 3 kilometers from the village of Plauru. The Ministry of Defense of Romania released a statement saying that, quote, they strongly condemn the attacks carried out by Russia on civil infrastructure facilities in Ukrainian ports on the Danube. 
and added that they did not believe the most recent incident was intentional. The Foreign Ministry of Romania also called for the Russian Federation to stop its attacks on Ukraine. Asking them to stop has been highly effective over the last two months. I'm sure Russia will stop this time. In Free Kherson, Kherson Oblast administrative and military governor Alexander Prokudin said Russia carried out 100 fire missions, firing 553 munitions, rockets, drone-delivered IEDs and bombs, striking the city of Kherson 53 times. We had reported yesterday that one person was killed and four wounded in overnight attacks. During the day, another person was killed and two more people were wounded. A day after Russian President Vladimir Putin said that women and children should not be targeted, referencing the Israel-Hamas war, Russian forces shelled the children's hospital in Kherson. There were no women, children or medical professionals at the facility because of the damage caused by previous attacks. Ova Prokudin made a personal appeal for residents with children to evacuate. Quote, Every day we feel the hell of Russian shelling. Sooner or later the situation may become critical for peaceful citizens. You need to realize this and be ready. I again urge you to take care of your children and give them the opportunity to live in a safer place. My children are not with me now. They are with their mother in Ukraine, but in relative safety. This is my decision, as a father, as a person and as an official who must take care of those who trust him with their lives. I assure you, you will definitely return home. The main thing is that they are alive and unharmed. And we, together with the entire team of authorities, doctors, law enforcement officers and rescuers, have made our choice. We are staying and continuing to work in Kherson. Let's talk about events that happened on the Russian front. In the city of Bryansk, a Ukrainian drone mm, fell on the your home construction complex and exploded. Part of the complex caught fire. Russian officials claim they used electronic warfare to skillfully steer the drone into the factory. Well, the last part we made up, but they did claim the drone was stopped by electronic warfare. Quick sidebar. Why is it that whenever Ukrainian drone isn't shut down and still hits something, Russia claims they used electronic warfare to steer it into a building? How is that a better outcome? Before I talk about theater-wide events, a quick footnote. We are covering the Israel-Hamas war and have started situation reports available through our Patreon. $5 a month gets you in-depth information about the Russia-Ukraine and Israel-Hamas war. There is a link in the podcast description. And now to the theater-wide events. The main defense intelligence directorate of the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine, UHUR, that's how you say it in Ukrainian, confirmed that Russian forces captured a Ukrainian commando in Crimea on October 4. Uhur spokesperson Andriy Yusuf said, quote, 
we will not publish new data, but yes, we can confirm that there are losses, including a prisoner, and the losses are disproportionate to the enemy's losses. Unquote. The prisoner has been identified as Oleksandr Lobas. We are sharing his name and picture in alignment with our editorial policy to publish the information about POWs we believe are in grave danger of harm. Chief advisor to the head of the Office of the President of Ukraine, Mikhailo Podolyak, said that Ukraine had developed IMF-compliant short-range ballistic missiles. Quote, if we want to have parity, then we need not only drone production, but rocket production. And we already have tested experimental samples that have a range of 750 to 1,000 kilometers. Podolyak said that Ukraine would need funding assistance to increase production, adding that serial production had started. NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg said that Turkey had promised to ratify Sweden's accession to the alliance, but did not specify a timetable. In September, the president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, announced that the United States would have to agree to sell his nation F-16s to gain approval. According to the United States publication Newsweek, the U.S. is set to transfer a significant number of Switchblade 600 Kamikaze drones to Ukraine. The 600 is a larger version of the Switchblade 300 and is capable of destroying light armored vehicles. The drone can loiter for up to 45 minutes waiting for its target and has a range of 90 kilometers. It is somewhat similar to the Russian Landsat, but with a smaller warhead. It's unclear why shipments of the Switchblade 600 were delayed for more than a year. The smaller man-portable Switchblade 300 has suffered from a failure rate of up to 30% and was designed as a weapon to target individuals. We can't say that Ukraine has stopped using the 300, but it has been over a year since we've seen one used in combat. Earlier this year, the Pentagon ended the Switchblade 300 program, likely in part due to its unsustainable cost of $53,000 for the base station and $6,000 per kamikaze drone. While $350 to $500 first-person view drones are more susceptible to electronic warfare than the military design 300, the cost and the lack of complexity make the FPV drones more sustainable. While training for F-16 pilots has still not started, the Netherlands has pledged to send 12 to 18 F-16s to Romania in a few weeks to support Ukrainian pilots. Minister of Defense for the Netherlands, Kaiser Ollengren, said that once the aircraft arrive, full-fledged work can begin. In a troubling sign for military aid for Ukraine, Congressman Steve Scalise withdrew from the race for Speaker of the House. Exasperated Republican lawmakers on and off the record lamented the divide within the party, and it appears that eight days of progress has been ruined. Because of the composition of the House of Representatives, it only takes four Republicans to derail any potential candidate. The gap between hardliners of the Freedom Caucus and moderate Republicans is enormous, making it nearly impossible to create a coalition of support. Likewise, for a Democrat to become Speaker of the House, it would require five Republicans to commit the equivalent of political suicide. 
without a change in House rules, a new Speaker from the Democratic Party would almost certainly face a motion to vacant the moment they were seated. The United States Constitution does not have a plan B if the House cannot confirm a Speaker, and it is unclear how the gridlock can be solved. Thank you for listening to The War Report. Your support of my home, Ukraine, helps us make history and protect the future for all. Now, let me turn the podcast over to my executive producer and co-host Zarina Zabrisky. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. On October 12th, the Russian military located across the river Dnipro have launched 100 attacks. Two civilians were killed, six more injured, including one child. It's about 10.30 or 40 a.m. and I'm reporting from the site of the Children's Regional Hospital in Kherson, which was just hit about 10 minutes ago in a series of artillery shots, most likely from a haubitz, but we don't know yet. Fortunately, all the patients were moved from this building because it was hit already before. There were aerial bombs dropped at the city and the region as well. As we report, the shelling or the bombing, we don't know exactly, continues. We are currently in a university that had 12 faculty and had a busy, bustling student life. It has been hit four times since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. And this morning, the Russian military hit the general major hall. Today, around 10 a.m. in the morning, there was a hit on the building of the university. It was an artillery shell. People didn't suffer, the building did. We didn't have any military objects here at all. The artillery shell damaged the roof and the recreation hall was damaged as well. So another site that was hit today, that's all within a few hours. The university, another educational institution, and the children's hospital. Part of the fortress built in Catherine's time. And the tree right next to it was hit today. Hi there, this is David Obelts. I'm the chief content officer from Malcontent News. I just wanted to jump in before we move to this next segment. Zorina Zabriski is on assignment in Hersan. She's staying there longer than what we intended And the reason for that is there are only two Western journalists left in Hersan. And if she were to leave because of the security situation, authorities aren't going to let her or any other journalists back in. It is a very spicy environment, as we like to say, among the editorial team. Now, with that said, Zorina has been doing interviews despite the fact that she is in Hersan. During this next segment, Because she is in an active combat zone, and there are sometimes problems with the internet, the audio downscales it, and there's nothing we can do about it. The interview is very important. That's why we're sharing it. And I deeply appreciate your understanding that we are bringing you the news from the middle of a war zone. 
I have a chance to speak to David Marples, Professor of History and Politics at the University of Alberta in Canada. Professor Marples researches mainly Belarus and Ukraine and teaches Russian history. My first question is, what are your thoughts on the situation developing in Israel in light of the ongoing war of aggression in Ukraine? From the perspective of someone in Western Canada, a long, long way away from both, it's really a diversion in some ways for people wanted to know what's happening in Ukraine. And a lot of world attention, I think, has been diverted to to uh, Israel after that uh, out, outrageous attack by Hamas um, at the weekend. Yet, on the other hand, I think it's another example of the need for Western powers to maintain a firm stance uh, in times of emergency. And that means essentially that the United States has got to be at the forefront as the main supplier of weapons to both Ukraine and Israel. I actually think Israel's got enough weapons to, to manage by itself right now. Uh, Ukraine certainly hasn't. So my, my hope is that it's, you know, given the fact that it's such a terrible event, and we understand that. On the other hand, I wouldn't like it to weaken the cause of Ukraine, which is at a, a really vital stage of the war. And the United States is a little unpredictable because it's going into an election year next year, and no one really knows what's going to happen. Um, Donald Trump could even be president from jail, as far as we can see. But he's certainly very uh, prominent in the news right now, and he's making statements every day about not giving aid to Ukraine, and some Republicans are are following suit. I mean, right now they're out of power, and I think they'll remain out of power, but there's always that threat in the background uh, of a change of government. In the light of the current events, I would love to revisit an event that happened two weeks ago during Ukrainian President Zelensky's visit to Canada. A former fighter of the 14th Waffen Division of the SS, Yaroslav Hunka, now 98, was invited to speak before the Canadian Parliament and got a standing ovation there. How does the controversy surrounding Hunka's invitation connect with Ukraine's history during World War II? It's really a microcosm of the overall war when you have a major war taking place between two belligerents, Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, and in the case of Ukraine, about 2.5 million Ukrainian soldiers fighting in the Red Army, and at the same time, Ukraine being occupied for about three years by the Germans and their allies. So Ukraine is really not a, an independent state in that period. In the interwar period, Ukraine was divided between uh, the Soviet Union, most of it in the Soviet Union and Poland. And in the Soviet Union, it was a, a period of, of great repression. You had uh, the famine uh, in eastern Ukraine in 1933, and you had the Great Purge of 1937-38, which eliminated Ukrainian cultural and political leaders. And in Polish side, you had a fairly authoritarian state, which really limited Ukrainians' rights of free expression a political representation and led to Ukrainians adopting more extreme forms, um, communism in the 1920s, but more nationalism by the 1930s. And the organization of Ukrainian nationalists formed in 1929, which carried out terrorist acts against Polish leaders, among other things. 
So it was a fairly hostile environment there too, but not on the same kind of scale. And Galicia is the central part, I think, of life in the Polish side. When the war begins, Ukraine is divided into different parts by the by the Nazis. Initially, uh, the Germans don't give much representation to Ukraine. They ignore the Declaration of Independence by uh, the Melnik wing of the Oun in 1941 and go on to various victories. But as the war turns and the Soviet Union begins to get more victories after the Battle of Stalingrad and begins advancing westward, then the situation changes and Germans start looking for allies among the national groups, the non-Russian, well, even Russian to some extent, but the non-communist part of the population. And I think in in July 1943, um, Hunker is one of those in Galicia who takes the opportunity to join a unit in order to fight against the Soviet Union to prevent being um, either killed by the Red Army, forced to join the Red Army, or transported for forced labor in, in Germany. Um, I mean, I think it's it's a, probably a big mistake because you're joining an organization that swears loyalty to Adolf Hitler, is inspected by uh, SS Reichsführer Heinrich Himmler. I believe that some of these younger kids who are joining, I mean, they're all about 17 or 18 years of age. They don't have much alternative and they don't really have much idea about what will happen to them. And in fact, after the Battle of Brody, when many of them lost their lives, the unit was reformed and did uh, fight, um, took activities in Poland, in Slovakia, Slovenia later in the war, and then surrendered as, as the first Ukrainian National Army. This was the name they gave themselves by the end of the war, surrendered to the Americans and the British, and eventually were put into DP camps and ended up in North America or Western Europe. And I don't think you can simply dis- dismiss them all as Nazis or committed Nazis. They were people caught up in this storm of war and decided for them that Nazi Germany, despite all the horrors it had committed, was still a better alternative than the Soviet Union when they joined this unit. And uh, Hunker was one of them. It was a mistake on the part of the, the speaker in the Canadian parliament He chose him because he lived in his riding, not realizing how inappropriate that might be and how difficult it might be for someone like Zelensky to um, be presented with that situation. A Jewish president of Ukraine faced with someone who was fighting in a Nazi. Mistakes all around, I would say. The Kremlin was very eager to jump on the narrative. How do you think the current narratives that uh, Russia is pushing fit into the whole concept of the war in Ukraine and uh, its actions in Ukraine now? Well, I think for Russia, this was almost like a godsend, right? They couldn't believe their luck that this would happen in the Canadian parliament so publicly. And it gave credibility to a lot of ridiculous social media comments that Russia has been making over the past few months. And also to the general Russian narrative about the Second World War, which is is not entirely fabricated, but largely based on fabrication of Russia's role in that war, which is greatly exaggerated and a belittling of Ukraine's, Ukraine's role. And it kind of fit for them that the people who were collaborating with the Nazis are essentially the same people who are in government in Ukraine today, the same people who carried out a revolution in the Maidan and in their view 
with the support of Western allies. So the, the Western allies have become the Nazis and Ukrainian collaborators in World War II are equated with Ukrainians in Ukraine today, the government of Ukraine and its supporters. This is extremely far-fetched, but you know, events like giving the, you know, giving the floor and the standing ovations to someone in the SS division in Canada, of all places, does help Putin's narrative. And his narrative probably would be that the Ukrainian diaspora in Canada is full of Nazis, and they remain today. You know, that they're no different than they were when they first came here. And they have the same beliefs, they have the same heroes, and they're, they're just anti-Russians. There, it, it makes it very cut and dried and black and white, and people often cannot tell the difference, right? What, how is this simplified? How is, what is the real situation both in Ukraine and in Canada. So I've been at pains to say, you know, you will not find a single Nazi in the Ukrainian cabinet. It's a mind game in some ways that Russia is playing. But what surprises me is that there's so many Western professors, political activists who buy this, you know, who take this belief from Russian propaganda. Why do you think this is happening? Why do you think the Russian historians and uh, Russian scholars are so eager to jump on these false narratives? The question might be, from what does Russia derive its national identity today? You know, the Soviet Union ended. Russia decided that it was the heir to the Soviet Union. It took over all its buildings. It took its embassies. There was a very smooth transition from the Soviet Union to Russia politically, not economically, but politically. So there were no purges of past leaders or anything like that. It was not necessary. The same leaders were there. They just came from lower down the hierarchy. And Putin, it seemed to me, for some time has been thinking, well, you know, what is Russia? You know, Ukraine thinks about the Holodomor when he thinks about his past. You know, we remember the victims of the Holodomor. For Russia, the only positive note is victory in the Second World War. This is what they cling to. And... The narrative of that war has been solidified from, I would say 1965 is when it really began to take take off as a cultural phenomenon in the Brezhnev period. Putin restored it and built on it to, to, to a new narrative that everything is dependent on Russia. The Russian state won the Second World War, it defeated the Nazis, it saved the Europeans, and they're so ungrateful. They mock veterans, they change narratives, They rehabilitate Nazis. They even celebrate them in places like Latvia. And this is all wrong. And we must regain our privileges and rights. And the territories that we occupied earlier, all the way back to the Russian Empire, should be ours again. So you're using a 20th century narrative, but an imperial perspective that goes back a lot further. And that is the only way they can justify being in places like Zaporizhia and her sons, because it was taken by Catherine the Great back in the late 18th century. And Ukraine is defying everything that Russia stands for. And not only that, but it's also turning to the West. It wants to join the European Union. It wants to join NATO. And this is unacceptable to Vladimir Putin and his gang who've taken over power. I agree with you. I think Putin did weaponize history. That's how ideas become material. Thank you very much, David, for your opinion and your time. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, 
please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Mail Content News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.